0: Proverbs chapter 7. So as you're turning in your Bibles, let me offer this warning. Anybody that brought small children into the room this morning, Proverbs chapter 7 is the passage of Scripture that's on the adulterous woman. Now, I'm not going to make it any more explicit than the text makes it, uh, but if you don't want your children to be asking you questions afterwards, if you're not ready for those conversations, I will not be offended at all. If you pack up your things and head out to the front, I get it, all right? All um, right. My son's still here, so I think it's appropriate, but if you don't want to have those conversations, that's quite all right. Uh, Let me also start us off in this way. In this room, there are many that have made mistakes in this area of life. You are not alone, even though the devil may want you to feel like you're all alone. Your life is not over, even though the devil may want to fill your head with that lie that your life is over. You are not a disgrace even though the devil may want to fill your head with that lie as well. And you are not damaged goods, even though the devil will whisper that lie to you. Jesus knows all that we have ever done, all the sins that we have ever committed. And in all of those sins, he nailed them to the cross and paid for them all with the grace and mercy that he offers us there. So whatever your sin issue is this morning, and we all have sin issues, if you're in the room and you're perfect, then please make your way forward because I'm going to sit down and let you take care of the text this morning, but all of us have issues and there is grace and mercy and forgiveness in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we talk about things that are sometimes difficult, we have to be careful not to talk about them in a way that is so harsh that we walk out feeling beat up. We have to confront our sin, but we need to walk out in the glorious grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ that offers us hope, no matter what our past is, that our future is bright and glorious with Him. If you're in the room and you have never made a mistake in this area, good for you. Today should serve as a reminder of the trajectory of wisdom. But as I walk through this, I want to walk through this recognizing grace and forgiveness for all sins. And I wanna say to you, we don't place our emphasis on past mistakes that we can't do anything about, but we place our emphasis on future trajectory. We don't dwell in depression about the depths of our sin, but we rejoice in the depths of His grace. We focus on the future and on the love of our Savior and seek to serve Him well, pursuing the way of wisdom. So we're just gonna walk through the text and let the text speak, knowing that the text ultimately points us to Jesus and the grace that is found in the gospel. Now in Proverbs chapter seven, there is a looming exegetical question. Is this a real story or is this fictional? And often a lot of people spend a lot of time debating this issue or talking about it. I like what the NIV application commentary says about it. Quoting here, it's a mistake to allegorize the story so that it becomes just a statement about folly and does not speak to the issues of sexuality out of control. At the same time, it is a mistake to focus on the sin of adultery as to miss the larger point about the folly of sin in general. This story serves as a symbol for men and women of the deceptive appeal of folly over wisdom and a specific warning against sexual transgression. So, as we look at it, I have three points for you today. We are going to look at the prevention in verses one through five. The illustration in verses 6 through 23, and then the caution that comes in verses 24 through 27. So we're going through the whole chapter. I want to read the first five verses. And so would you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as I read to you the first five verses? My son, keep my words. Treasure up. My commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, You are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend, to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress, with her smooth words. Dear Lord, today, may you be glorified. And may you guard the words that I say so that I speak only that which you would want. And may we be drawn closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This text in verses one through five begins with the prevention, but I should give you the central idea before I walk through the first point. The central idea of the text is that Proverbs begs us to keep and treasure God's wisdom to avoid folly. We see that in these first five verses. But here, the word intentionally chosen begs us. If you read through the book of Proverbs, as you read through it, it talks about get insight, get wisdom. It's continually repeated over and over and over in every chapter how we should just strive and pursue wisdom with all that we are. And so in fact, Proverbs begs us It's as if the writer of Proverbs is begging a son or begging us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, get wisdom, don't drift over into folly, get wisdom, live a life full of wisdom, pursue wisdom. So this is our central idea of the text, the main idea. Proverbs begs us to keep and treasure God's wisdom to avoid folly. He begins in verse one with my son. Introductory command calling for the son's attention. And then we see in these first few verses the word keep three times. Why would you have this repetition? And it's not just the repetition of the word keep, but then there's also treasure up. Keep it as the apple of your eye, which we'll talk about in a minute. Bind them around your fingers. Say to them you're the sister, you're the intimate friend that's always around. Keeping God's word means that we must systematically read, study, meditate, and memorize his laws, his word, so that we will have it hidden in our heart so that we might not sin against him. But it's not just enough to know what the word says and not live the word out. We should make sure that we have head knowledge that results in obedience to what God has told us to do. Right theology results in right living. Orthodoxy should result in orthopraxy. The visual image here is to treasure up. Treasure up God's commands. I thought about this. I, I, have a, I have a big safe at the house. I put things in the safe that I treasure or that I value. But I don't think that's exactly what the text is meaning here because I put things in the safe that I treasure or value because I want to keep them, but I don't, I don't consult them all the time. I don't, I, I'm not constantly with them. I treasure or I value my relationship with my children. I'm constantly around them, I'm talking to them, I'm with them, I treasure or value relationships with dogs in our house. I mean, we treat our dogs as though they're extensions of our family and we introduce them to all of chapel and so we treasure those type relationships. Perhaps that continuing relationship of treasuring something is more about what it means. So the question is, what do you treasure? How do you treat the things that you treasure? And does God's word, God's commandments, the Bible, make it into the list of things you treasure and the things that you treat in that way? Why do we keep these commandments? Well, the text tells us here, keep my commandments and live. John Phillips states that the word here lives implies live forever. It implies something longer and something larger than just this life, but it certainly implies living this life to the fullest. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Now the apple of your eye is the pupil, that little dark speck in your eye that perhaps when you're looking at somebody else and you're really up close and you're you're looking to see if they're looking at you and you can look and see your reflection in the darkest portion of the middle of their eye. It's that little space. It's used in verse nine here as well where it talks about the dark of the night as the apple of the night's eye. Perhaps you went to a middle school that was a lot nicer than the one I went to. But at the one I went to, we would often do little tricks. Like, are you afraid of a man this small? Has anybody ever done this to you? Ever done this to you? So you would walk up to one of your buddies, you'd be about this far away, and you'd look at your buddy in this macho voice, and you'd say to your buddy, are you afraid of a man this small? And of course, the macho buddy would say, of course not. And then you'd jab it at him and you watch them blink. And you say, well, why did you blink then if you're not afraid? It's because our eyes are valuable to us. They're important to us. We want to protect them. And so we wanna make sure that they don't get hurt. If you ever get bitten by a shark, you punch it in the eye. At least that's what they tell you on TV, right? Uh, alligators, same thing. I hope I never encounter either one of those, but that's what they tell us. Even, even the, the Three Stooges figured this out, right? Pick two. Anybody ever seen the Three Stooges? They would say pick two and they'd poke them in the eye, right? I mean, old school TV figured this out. So what's the apple of your eye? I remember the expression of having a grandpa say that the granddaughter was the apple of his eye. It's it's what the eye would look at and then delight upon. There would be a smile that would come over the face of the person looking at it with delight and joy because it was the apple of the eye. Now if God's word, if proper worship of God as we sing together is the apple of our eye and brings joy to our heart, it's a good sign. If there are other things in life that perhaps captivate your attention and your affections in such ways that your eye lights upon them and they bring joy to your eye. Perhaps you need to look and caution yourself. This principle works all throughout sports and in gymnastics and karate. In karate, you learn how to do throws. You grab the top of the head. Where the head goes, the body follows. In gymnastics, you cut flips. Where the head goes, the body follows. If you watch the Winter Olympics, those people, the crazy people that do all of those flips and stunts coming off of the the snow jumps and all, they would always say they have to spot their landing. Their eye would have to look at where they were going to go go. In our athletics here at Cedarville, I guarantee you the baseball players would say and softball players would say, keep your eye on the ball. The golfers would say, keep your head down while you're swinging. Keep your eye on the ball. If you look up too soon, it's going to mess up your swing. It's March Madness, and my bracket is completely ruined. I don't know about yours, Uh, but in in March Madness, they would say he didn't get a clear look at the basket. You got a hand in the face to keep the eyes from being able to light up on it, it's important for us to see the things that we desire. And hear the text is saying to us, keep my commandments and lives. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. How many of your brackets are ruined too, by the way? Michigan State, Xavier, Virginia, North Carolina. Uh, I tried to delete my bracket. It wouldn't let me, it's locked. Anyway, it's that bad. Okay, it says, bind them on your fingers. So when I was growing up, I'd hear people say, tie a string around your finger to remember this or that. I always thought that was the dumbest thing in the world, but that's what they would say. Deuteronomy 6, 8 says you should bind God's laws as a sign on your hand. They should be as frontlets between your eyes. You should write them on the doorpost. Says, say to wisdom that you are my sister. Some of you have sisters, and sisters are there when you want them there, and sisters are there when you don't want them there. They're always there. I don't have a sister. I have intimate friends. And it says here also that we should treat wisdom and insight as an intimate friend. Why do we do all these things? We do them to keep us from something else. Keep three times God's commandments, God's laws, God's teaching, so that it will keep us from the forbidden woman, the adulteress, with her smooth words. This is the fourth appearance of the strain strange, foreign, or forbidden woman in Proverbs. You have two, chapter two, verse 16 through 19, five, three, six, 24, and then here in Proverbs seven, five. So notice here that Solomon gives us a, he gives us a prevention. He gives us a prescription. He gives us what he wants us to do. And the positive thing that he wants us to do is keep the commandments, keep the teaching, keep the wording, keep it as the apple of our eye. Have our affections focused upon God, upon Jesus, and we learn about God and Jesus through his word. And that's what we do first. And then he gives us an illustration about this strange, this far, and this forbidden woman with the smooth words. And that's where we turn is to the illustration in verses six through 23. We'll walk through these one at a time. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through the lattice. I have seen among the simple. I have perceived among the youths A young man lacking sense. Imagine, if you will, somebody, perhaps in my mind, at least in the second story window, looking out over all of those people who are moving about during the daytime. It's getting close tonight. He looks out, he introduces us to the first person. The first person here is isolated out of all the use and out of all those different ones, there is one particular young man lacking sense. We don't wanna be categorized as the one who lacks sense because the one who lacks sense in Proverbs 6:32 is the one who commits adultery. The one who lacks sense throughout Proverbs is the man of bad speech or the rash pledges or the sluggard. All throughout Proverbs, those who lack sense are not the ones we wanna be. So what is the description of this person who lacks sense? He's passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. What makes this young man lack sense? He's in the wrong place. We are told about the place that he is in. Solomon, in giving this illustration, wants us to know he's passing near her corner. He's taking the road to her house. We're gonna find out why that's a really bad idea. He's in the wrong place. He's in a place that he shouldn't go to. It's not wise. It's not good wisdom to be there. He was literally there at the twilight or the apple of the night's eye, playing off of the previous command knowing that sin looks for the cover of darkness. You'll see also that it's a singular man. It's the one person. He's alone. And often when we want to do things that we know we shouldn't do, we isolate ourselves from others. We seek to be away from those godly friends that would challenge us and say, don't do this. So how does the author describe the person who lacks sense? It's in the wrong place at the wrong time all alone. We should take notes of those things. This is what Solomon wants us to get. Pursuing wisdom means not being in the wrong place at the wrong time all alone because that opens the door for folly to walk in. And take note here of the intentionality of wisdom which would do the opposite. We remember in the Old Testament, David, who was at home at a time when the men went to war, who was getting up from his bed in the afternoon from a nap and he walks outside to see Bathsheba. If he'd been at war, he wouldn't have been there. Why he was getting up in the afternoon, I don't know. But surely he thought he would get away with what he did and not result in the death of Uriah the Hittite. We're introduced to someone else. Verse 10, just suddenness to the action. He says, and behold, perhaps the heart begins to beat a little faster. The pulse begins to race a little bit. The woman enters the illustration. She meets him. What kind of woman are we introduced to? She's dressed as a prostitute. Wiley of heart. I don't know exactly what Wiley is supposed to mean, but I know Wiley E. Coyote was never a good thing. And so Wiley indicates to us a negative connotation, shrewd in the bad sense of the word. Manipulative, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. She's not a quiet and gentle spirit. Her feet do not stay at home. She's now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait and lies in wait. Oh, the text there just gives us that indication and makes our minds flash forward to the lion who lies in wait for the prey that he seeks to devour. She's physically dressed to attract the man. She indicates the craftiness of her heart through her dress and through her wiliness. Verse 13, the action intensifies even more. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows. So I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon he will come again. What do we see here in folly? It's the appeal to all of the senses. Folly has already tempted him through sight with the clothes that she was wearing in 710. Folly tempts him through the sense of touch and the desire for intimacy in 716 and eight through 18. Folly seizes him and kisses him in 713. Folly tempts him through the sense of taste, through the delicacy of meat, from the sacrifice that she has offered in 7.14. Folly tempts him by appealing to his pride. I've come out to seek you. It's you that I wanted. It's you that I'm after. Now these are lies, but she's telling him, you're the one for me. 7.15. Folly tempts him through smell. 7.17. Folly alleviates his fears by saying, we won't get caught. 7.19 and 20. Does that sound like the temptations that you experience? She attacks the citadel of this man's heart with a Trojan horse of famed religious activity. You know how she begins? I've offered my sacrifices. I'm a good person. So ladies and gentlemen in the room, when somebody comes up to you and they say to you, oh, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Christ, and you think they're really attractive, you should still have a question mark. Are they truly a follower of Christ? Do they truly believe in Jesus? Or are they saying these things because they like you? Have they idolized you to the point that they will say whatever it takes to get you to do what they want you to do? And really, these are all lies. She's just sacrificed. She's inviting the young boy to a feast, the irony of which is that he's the victim to be sacrificed next. Her approach was so intimate. The urgent use of the personal pronouns. It's you, it's all about you. She appeals to his pride. She appeals to him through flattery. With bold face it says this, and bold face means she's flat out lying. You tell a lie with a bold face. In Proverbs twenty-one twenty-nine is the only other place that this phrase is found, and there it refers to a straight-faced lie. You can tell a lie looking at somebody as though you're absolutely telling them the truth. bold-faced lie. She appealed to his pride. Perhaps today, this appeal to pride would be something along the lines of, you complete me. No other person should ever complete you, for you are complete in Christ. And if you're looking for somebody else to make you happy and complete you, they can't bear the weight of the idolatry that you're placing upon their shoulders. I love you, I've never met anyone like you, you're one of a kind, you're the one destined for me, society says. And then comes the lines. But if you love me back, you will, dot, dot, dot. She mentions the perfumes. These are the same perfumes mentioned in the Song of Solomon. The aphrodisiac, the smell. Song of Songs, chapter four, verse 14 talks about these as the images of sexual love. The linens, not just any linens, but the Egyptian linens indicates that she has money, she has influence, they'll take their fill of love, which has sexual connotations, but this was no cheap hooker Fine linens, perfume, the invitation to her home, the skill of the seduction. We must recognize that folly when it comes to us, that folly attacks us with sophistication. The devil is no fool. The devil has been doing this for a long time. He understands how to tempt us and to get us at our weakest spots and we must play the game of chess well. We must understand that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we must be wise looking out for what is coming at us, not to stray into the pathways that we shouldn't, but to pursue wisdom in our life. This was the original desperate housewife, only she didn't live on Wisteria Lane. The morning suggests that this love affair has no strings attached. Today, we might express it as Netflix and chill or friends with benefits. But make no mistake, even though somebody may promise you something with no strings attached, there are strings attached. In fact, The word of God tells us that there are shackles of consequences with such action. Knowing the young man's worried about being caught, she offers that her husband's not at home and won't be home. We can get away with this. And then look at what happens. The scene is set, the young man in the wrong place at the wrong time, all alone, where he shouldn't be. The wily woman with her seductive speech entices the young man. In verse 21, we see it with seductive speech. She persuades him. With smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, The suddenness of the giving in to the temptation, he follows her. as what? As an ox that goes to the slaughter or a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. All at once, we've all experienced it. The temptation that appeals to us and our various weaknesses and all at once, we give in. All at once, we decide, I'm not going to resist any longer. I can't hold off. And it's almost as if that tractor beam in Star Trek or Star Wars has captured us and we are moving closer and closer. The time to resist temptation is immediately from the very beginning. This is how folly works when we linger too long, we give in. But recognize in the text here that her bedroom is no ballroom, it's a battlefield where the fallen bodies of soldiers rot in the stench of their own sinful ways. So we have seen the prevention. We have seen the illustration. And now we hear the caution. Verses 24 through 27. And now, O oh sons, plural, listen to me. Can you hear the father's voice here? Can you perhaps hear your dad or your mom's voice here? Can you hear the voice of someone who loves you and cares about you? Oh, now, sons, students, beloved faculty and staff, listen to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart, your inner being, your desires, your will turn aside to her ways. Do not drift off the path of pursuing wisdom and stray into her paths. We plead, we beg, pursue wisdom. Don't let your heart be attracted by the temptation or stray into the wrong areas. For many a victim has she laid low and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol going down to the chambers of death. It's plural, sons. It's listen, it's be attentive. It's a pleading that our hearts would be guarded by the word of God to keep his word, which will keep us from the forbidden woman. God's word calls us to purity. God's word calls us to what's best. Society might want to twist that into some lie that tells you that you are forbidden from doing something that will bring you great joy, when in actuality, it's not going to bring you joy at all. That's a lie of the devil. It's only going to bring harsh consequences to your life. And even secular studies like the one in Indiana found that men having more sexual partners in their lifetime was a predictor for less sexual satisfaction than those who had one lifetime partner. Even secular studies get this. Even Lecrae gets this. Quote, any boy can go find a girl and try to satisfy her for a whole night, but a real man can take one and satisfy her for a whole life. So let me give you some principles to remember in closing this out. Principle number one, purity is not an earthly condition, but a spiritual trajectory. So Dan Agresh, who will be speaking here uh, later this week, actually, has highlighted some concerns that I share. Sometimes I fear that when we talk about chapters like Proverbs five, Proverbs six, Proverbs seven, that we make it about this status on earth, about virginity or abstinence, and that's primarily focused on single women and that that's the only goal, but we must be clear that the call to purity is for men and women, singles and married, young and old. We must be clear that it's not about an earthly condition but it's about a spiritual trajectory. Purity begins with the gospel, a redeemed life saturated and guarded with the word of God which allows the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit to bring every desire of our heart, every meditation of our mind, every word that comes out of our mouth, every action of our body into complete submission and surrender to Jesus Christ. We don't focus on our past sin and we don't allow that to define us because we are defined as being in Christ. That is our identity. No matter what we have done when we repent and ask for the forgiveness of Christ, we are then clothed with his righteousness, not by our own works, but by his completed work so that God sees his righteousness so that you are not worthless, you are not unusable, that you are not a second-class citizen, but you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You are redeemed by Jesus Christ and have value and worth and your identity is that you are in him and nothing else we don't look back at the I the me and the my of Romans chapter 7 that ends in wretched person that I am who will rescue me from this body of death we look forward to life and the power of the spirit of Romans chapter 8 where there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ number two purity is not a deal to be made with God to get my way but complete surrender to his way. I feel like sometimes we send this message out that if you put this ring on your finger and you, you, you live pure life, then you're gonna get everything you want and it's gonna be all roses and happiness. And, and that gives an image and a picture of God being a genie in a bottle where you can do this and get that. It's a quid pro quo and that's not what the Bible promises us. The Bible tells us to pursue wisdom and to pursue purity, but just because we're pursuing wisdom and purity doesn't mean everything in life is gonna work out perfectly. This world is filled with sinful people. And if you all are half as sinful as I am, that makes life difficult to live with other people. So it comes out like this. God, I'll wait so that you will send me exactly what I want. That promise is never in Scripture. God, I'll wait so that you will send me that godly, beautiful, intelligent, evangelistic, tall, athletic, long brown hair, Bible verse memorizing, frugal yet elegant, classy yet good steward, proverbial Proverbs 31 woman. Well, you're out of luck. I found the only one there is, all right? And so (laughs) you can't have one. So guys, if you're waiting on perfection, come on you're a long way from perfect. If you find perfection, she's going to laugh at you. Are you serious? You think, yeah, you're not going to find perfection. You're not there. We're going get you right. And then let God show you somebody that you should spend time with. Ladies, if your Facebook status says I'm dating Jesus, then that's probably the only person you're dating for a really long time. All right. <laughs> I'm just saying. If your standards are so high that you want the absolute perfect godly guy that has everything together, not on a trajectory to get there, but already there, already landed, boy, it's gonna be a long time before your parents have to pay for a wedding. I'm just saying. I probably should stop, but I'm having fun. All right. Purity is not a deal to be made with God but it's complete surrender to his way. So don't work on finding the right person, work on being the right person. Number three, purity is not just about the other person. So men, I wanna talk to you here, we'll talk to the ladies in a minute, but men, we often make purity about the clothes women wear. But we are responsible for what we look at we are responsible for how long we look, and we are responsible for the thoughts that go through our minds as we look. We often act like immodest clothing is the Jedi mind trick, and it renders us incapable of anything else but lust. But let me remind you that Jedi mind tricks only work on the weak-minded. So if your answer to modesty is it's her problem, no, it's not. It's your problem. And you're not weak-minded. So focus on your own thoughts and recognize a sister in Christ. Now, ladies, the biggest problem with immodesty is not necessarily the clothes you're wearing. That may be a problem. But it's a desire to point somebody to the creature rather than the creator. Adorn yourself with what's proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So in dating at Cedarville, before I get any more trouble, I'm still gonna get more trouble down there. We emphasize that members of the opposite sex are not objects for our pleasure, but men and women created in the image of God. Pursue wisdom. Fellow believers are your brothers and sisters in Christ and biblical dating or courting leaves people better than you found them, guiding them closer to God, not leading them away from God. Pursue wisdom. Dating should mean treating somebody in such a way that the person they end up marrying will thank you and invite you to the wedding. Not seek to kill you if you show up. Pursue wisdom. So final application here. Guys, some of you just need to go ask a girl out. Yeah, it's an odd application, right? But you need to think about how it is to spend time with somebody as a sister in Christ, leading them closer to God and doing it in the right way. And they may not be the one for you, but some of you just need an excuse to ask that girl out that you've been wanting to ask out, so here's your excuse, so I'm helping you out, all right? You have an excuse, you have an application from a sermon, go ask somebody out, do it. Now let me give you the real final point here. Psalms 119, nine through 11. How can a young man or a young lady keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is it. So, can I be the father in this chapter right quick? Consider you all my adopted sons and daughters and say to you, O children, please listen, don't stray. Don't let your heart be attracted by the deception of folly but guard it according to God's word. With your whole heart, seek God's word. Don't wander or stray from these commandments. Store up God's word in your heart that you might not sin against him. Central idea, Proverbs begs us. It pleads with us. It urges us to keep and treasure God's wisdom to avoid folly. Dear Lord, we are so prone to wonder. May you bind our hearts to your word and to the cross. May you put us in churches that will hold us accountable and keep us on the right way. May you give us grace and wisdom as we pursue you. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.